me go ahead and tweet this link and we can start when you guys are ready. Yeah, and we're, we're good, ready to go. So uh, how, how are you, I guess, to, to start off with? How are things um, going with, you, with yourself? It has been a very long year, a very long year. Yeah, I, I uh, feel the same. I think this week's been a, a very long week, um, longer than um, than usual. Uh, maybe I'll come on to that in a moment. But um, I, I kind of figure we're, I've got a couple of questions. And uh, if you're OK, perhaps we uh, use this time to get people up on stage to to ask questions. Uh, how, how much time have you got to spend with us? Uh, today? I think I have about 25, 30 minutes. So let's get to your questions. Sure. So I think, first of all, I wanted to um, just ask a question around governance. Obviously, there seems to be a real uh, big push, a positive push towards, you know, the, the government uh, governance aspect of things. Um, now, I've seen with other chains, um, some of these uh, voting mechanisms become uh, more like popularity contests, and, um, very challenging for new people that really do care about the, you know, the blockchain. Um not really been able to, to make uh, an impact. Um, what are your thoughts on perhaps some of the challenges with the governance aspect of things for Cardano? Well, you need three fundamental properties for a governance system to be effective and credible. Um, first, you need the consent of the governed. And then there's a big open question of how exactly ought that work. Um, then second, you need institutions. And what institutions do is they take complexity and they make it simple. Because there's a lot of really complicated things, like where do we build the nuclear reactor and how do we properly build that? You know, it's one thing to say, should we build it? It's another thing to make sure it gets done appropriately and it doesn't kill us. And then the third thing you need are hard to change principles, which are universally recognized that if you don't make those hard to change can create catastrophic. So we typically enshrine those in constitutions and we have a concept of negative rights. Uh, so, for example, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, the right to assembly, recently the right to due process for depriving you of life, liberty and property. You know, these these foundational things. And even the British had this concept of the Magna Carta, which says even if you're a king, you can't necessarily deprive people some baseline. So those are three sampling. So a consent, institution and a constitution component. And whether you're running an organization, so you have shareholders votes and a shareholders agreement to see the organization as an institution on itself to deal with its internal complexities and then external meta governance, i.e. regulators that come in or government onto itself like the United States, where you have the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court and the president and then the bureaucratic arm of the government, which are the institutions and then obviously that's constitution, it scales. So that's what we've been focusing on with 1694 is trying to build a voting system, a collection of institutions and a constitution which creates what we term as minimal governance. And basically what that translates to is not a perfect government where every single person feels they're adequately represented, but rather a recursive government where people say this is good enough to get to step two and step three and step four, where each step along the way, you improve those three properties. Your institutions get more credible, effective, efficient. You have a larger set of people that you sample from to gather consent and you get more nuanced consent from people. And then your governing documents get more refined to protect and preserve the rights of uh, every user as opposed to just a majority rule. Now, the good news is that there are thousands of years of political science and organizational design that we've sampled and drawn from. And what we've done as an ecosystem is uh, gotten to a point with Intersect, the Cardano Constitution and uh, SIP 1694, where I think we, we, in a short period of time, will have a good enough basis to start that process. And then very shortly thereafter, like every few months, every few years, you'll start seeing each of those things evolve very quickly. 
And within just three to five years, you'll have a totally different governance system than SIP 1694 has. And ultimately, if it's successful, a, a much more robust and resilient uh, governance system. That's kind of the high-level answer to your question, but I think it kind of covers the bases. And then, you know, we can always get into the details of specifics, but you also have to remember that what ends up happening in any democratic system is whenever somebody's on the losing side of the vote, their first instinct is to challenge the legitimacy of the system altogether. I'm old enough to remember in 2000 when Al Gore lost, um, our political party said, uh, you know, the Supreme Court decided this and Bush is not our real president. And then in 2020, when Trump lost, he said, oh, the entire system is wrong. And uh, Biden is not our president. And I was legitimately elected. You see, so when you lose the election or you're on the losing side, you tend to challenge it, which is why you have to rely on the strength of your institutions and also the, the overall fidelity of the voting stuff to be able to deal with those radicalized groups that are, are upset that they didn't exactly get away. Um, and this is in the, the cryptocurrency of this is hard forks. So you have Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum Classic as the two biggest examples. One would argue Bitcoin SV, although that seems to be a slightly different concern. But th these are examples of, of governance failures. There, you couldn't get ubiquitous consent to move forward. And so you fracture your community and your ecosystem. The NXT community is another example of that. It's broken to many different pieces. And had they stayed together, they'd probably be in the top 10 and a legitimate competitor to Ethereum. Yeah, it's rather interesting stuff. I, I found some you know, challenging stuff on the Polkadot ecosystem around uh, the, the governance around marketing and, and stuff like that. Um, so I'm really interested to see how, how it progresses on, on Kano. Um, the other thing I wanted to sort of touch on was the new identity wallet. I've uh, had a, a bit of a long week this week. I uh, found myself uh, debanked here in the UK, uh, mainly down to, to crypto investment being made. Um, and obviously, there's a bit of a gap between the FCA and uh, you know the bank's interpretation of you know what's it, what's uh, excessive. Uh, I guess what is um, you know uh, reasonable to to ask for when it comes to um, you know the amount of information that they they require to be compliant with uh, the regulations here in the UK. Um, what what are your thoughts on? I guess the Cardano wallet and uh, progression towards, you know, uh, supporting the unbanked uh, on the blockchain. Well, okay. So there's a broader house of concepts called self-sovereign identity. And there's currently kind of a, a big philosophical conversation about what should identity look like in the 21st century. And it's a complicated because you're not just talking about human beings. You're, you're talking about human beings. You're talking about AI you're talking about drones, robots, you're talking about supply chains, you're, you're, you're talking about transnational identity, where it's not Colorado said I'm Charles Hoskinson, or uh, Hawaii said that, or the United States said that, but it's something that somehow transcends the commons and is ubiquitously recognized by everybody. So the good news is that we as an industry have made gargantuan progress on standards. We created both the DITERD and then a, a whole family of standards around the DIT standard, which basically creates an object to represent identity and then a metadata a container with that object to talk around properties of that identity. And what's nice is this is crypto native, meaning it can live very comfortably on Bitcoin or Ethereum or Cardano. And so there are many different projects that are building software and tools like Hyperledger Indie, for example, or our in-house Atala Prism, which is now actually part of Hyperledger. So Hyperledger Prism, huzzah. Uh, and those frameworks basically give you the ability to issue, revoke, and talk around these DIDs. So that's one house of things. Then usually you start asking two set sessions, suitability guidelines, which is usually framed as compliance, and then credibility guidelines, which is usually framed as credit. So 
am I allowed to do business with this person? I need to know who they are. KYC, AML, uh, politically exposed person tests, uh, sanctions list, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, that's something. Then the credibility is, is this person safe to do business with? Like, if I give them a loan, will they pay me back? Well, the good news is DIDs were built in a way through DID documents where you can gradually build on top of that. And the advantage with cryptography is that you can now get much more nuanced about things. For example, there's a standard called an on-creds that exists. And a non-creds allows you to prove something without revealing the information. For example, are you a U.S. resident? How would you normally prove this? You would show your passport and a some utility bills and other things to show you're a resident of a certain location. Well, what if you could, as a yes, no, yes, Cheeky Crypto is a U.S. resident um, and under U.S. jurisdiction without revealing it's Cheeky Crypto or any personally identifiable information. That's what the non-cred standard effectively does for any binary question if it's appropriately well-framed. So when you combine that alongside um, a lot of the other innovations that are happening in ML, you can start actually talking around a much more nuanced way of proving things in a decentralized way that protects your privacy and you own that credential and also creating better marketplaces for assessing the counterparty risk of the person that you're doing business with. So this is where the industry is moving. And I think Cardano is one of the leaders because we have Prism, we have Midnight, which allows the privacy preserving technology to come in. And we have other ventures that are in our ecosystem, like for example, SimularityNet that's doing a lot of this AI stuff. Imagine that for both the machine side and for the human side that uh, we can get these done, but it takes a village. And that's why we went to Abu Dhabi and talked to the ADGM in Dubai and we talked to VARA. It's why the foundation regularly engages with the UK's FCA and uh, the European regulators. And we also talked to the US regulators about how to use these types of things in a country context. And it does require a little bit of buy-in from the regulator, in particular digital signature rights. It also requires, in some cases, for the regulator to start putting some of their laws and regulations in machine understandable code, which is already starting to happen on the SRO level, like FINRA, for example, is doing this. And certain jurisdictions like the ADGM, for example, are starting to do this with uh, their, their regulations as pilot programs and projects. So we're moving in the right direction, uh, but there's probably another 10 years, I'd say, before there's ubiquitous global recognition. The good news is that the cryptocurrency industry is going to be the one that leads the way here. And the TradFi industry is going to have to catch up with us and gradually absorb this into their standards like ISO 222 and open banking and these types of things. Yeah, my understanding is the regulators have been, you know, quite well receptive to to conversations, particularly from from Cardano, uh, the FCA in particular. Is is that right? Is this more of uh, the banks perhaps being slower to adopt the the technology? Well, you have to understand the banks actually have a very strong financial incentive to embrace these types of things because from 2000 to 2023, if you look at all of the U.S. banks and you know, banks, they paid over 300 billion dollar in compliance fines and fines related to failure of their, their licenses. That's one third of a trillion dollars that they paid in compliance fines. So that's telling you that end to end, the banking industry is not doing well in complying with the regulations as written. And the reason being is that the regulations were never written from the perspective of a global economy. When you are the Securities Exchange Commission and you've just been formed and it's 1933, you're not really thinking too much about, well, okay, this asset that's issued in Tokyo, what does that mean to New York? It's like, it's like they don't even, it's like people have trouble pointing out where Tokyo exactly is on a map. And yet now you live in an environment where you can have a transaction on Cardano because of the extended UTXO model where each output goes to a person living in each country in the world. Just imagine that you could call it the world transaction where you have uh, an address owned by an individual in Kenya and Burundi and South Korea and North Korea, China. United States, Europe. So you tell me as a regulator, uh, what, what is the jurisdiction that regulates that transaction? 
when every output maps each country, let's say including Antarctica. Like, are the penguins going to go ahead and figure it out? It's, it's a pretty absurd thing, and regulation is not designed for that. The problem is if you're a global bank, you're starting to move trillions of dollars, and at a given time, you're like the Schrodinger's cat of regulation where that money is in and out of compliance. So basically, it comes down to, did the regulator want to find you or not? Because they can always find a law that you've broken or a policy broken. And it just becomes a recurring, revolving door of doing business. Nobody wants that system. They want to move to a system where settlement is compliance, meaning that if the transaction settles, it is compliance. That's the world they want to live in, because uh, then they don't have to have a third of their entire bank be the compliance desk and the compliance office is more powerful than the CEO. So I don't think it's necessarily a barrier to adoption for the banks. It's just it's how it's framed. And if we go to the world and say the whole point of crypto is to burn every government down, destroy every central bank and every, put every bank out of business, that's not really framing a, a positive message. If you go and say by embracing what we have as an industry and merging with it. Uh, you get to settlement as compliance. So you don't get $300 billion in fines in 20 years. They say, shit, how do I sign up? Where do I sign up? It just so happens we may actually end up eating them too. But, you know, you know publishers had to change. Newspapers had to change. That came out. Didn't put the New York Times out of business, but it did certainly put a lot of papers out of business. But it made them better, ultimately. Awesome. Uh, Nick, JB, uh, do you want to invite somebody up to ask a question? Don't be shy. I think we've got a few requests. So I think we've got Thomas. Yeah, can y'all hear me? Yeah. Hey, Charles. Uh, nice day. Uh, yeah, I have a quick question. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while with uh, AI and blockchain. Uh, it seems to me, as a guest from the future, uh, that blockchain is basically going to replace the old fiat world. We're talking like 10, 15, 20 years in the future. Um, where does centralized violence go if we have DIDs and everything like that? Because the government, they're good for one thing, it's violence. Uh, where does that go? Yeah, well, you have to ask yourself, what's the origin of violence? And you kind of have three buckets that you sample from for the origin of violence. It's, it's either a dispute about property or assets, um, it's dispute about race and culture, or it's dispute about philosophy. So by blockchaining the whole world, you remove the dispute about property and you create much better dispute resolution mechanisms. So that violence goes away. Uh, but you still have the other two buckets, the uh, culture, language, geography, race. Uh, these are built in human differences. And um, it, there's you know, every person can show you from a neurobiological perspective that people do recognize differences. And so there has to be a bit of, of cultural evolution for that to happen. And generally how you resolve that is by mixing people together, meaning that they spend time with each other and then those consists change. Uh, and then for philosophy, you know, this is religious differences, philosophical differences. Um, again, you have to develop new life philosophies to kind of get past that. So by no means will centralized violence go away. It just it means that the big thing that causes most of the violence in the 21st century, which is economic, that's why all these small progress happen, that goes away. And now we actually pivot more to the, how do we get along as a diverse group of people and how do we get along with a diverse group of opinions? Uh, just, just one more thing to add on that. Uh, where do you think, do you think the government is even gonna have a big enough role uh, besides taking violence away? Do you think it's still going to have a role in 10 years in blockchain and how would they operate? Well, it's very, it, yes, they always have a role. It's just the role changes a little bit so that the state does a collection of things. It has a monopoly on violence uh, and that'll never go away um, because at some point we as a society may decide that we want to kill someone, you know, 
So, oh, that'll never happen. Well, I don't know. What if a guy's going around like setting nuns on fire and raping kids every day? It's like maybe just maybe that person needs to go away. And you have to, uh, a societal discussion of the pedophile nun raper. You know, what do we do with that guy? You know, and so that's an example of a person you have to talk about. So the state is the entity that you empower with the with the mandate of deciding what to do with that person. And then on a, more broadly, you know, like who's going to fight the aliens or who's going to go and take the asteroids going to go hit Earth if we don't destroy an Armageddon style? Like who hires Bruce Willis in this scenario? That type of stuff. Second, they manage the commons. There's common resources. Um, there's national treasures like national forests, Yellowstone, these things. And somebody has to manage those things. And private property rights don't tend to work so well because there's a tragedy of the commons if you allow those to, to exist uh, in a completely, and that's well-documented economic effect. Um, the third thing is the state, and this is what blockchain makes obsolete, the state manages uh, things as the lender of last resort. The reason why the state manages money is not because they're the best managing money. They're just the least worst option. Uh, so when we had private monies in the 19, United States in the 19th century, we had over 200 private monies. And uh, almost all of them went belly up within 20 or 80 years of being created. Why? Because the incentive to steal is so high. You see, this kind of was tether where they, they're, they're like, are they backed? Are they not backed? Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. Who knows? You know, it's really hard to know. Why? Because the temptation is so strong. And what does back mean? Is it back like U.S. dollars in the account? Or maybe there's some commercial paper in there. Hey, as long as we put it back, we're right. Uh, so that's the problem with a private company running a, a public good is that the individual incentives of the private entity may be different from the public's incentives. So typically we give that to the government. What you're doing is you're saying, well, there's a third option now between private and public, it's blockchain, and the blockchain can provide that service. And I'd say there's three groupings of things that over the next 10 or 20 years, we must replace. And you can remember by the acronym CIA, not the one that overthrows countries, but consent, identity, and assets. So consent is your voting system. So basically, when you sample people and you want to get their opinion, your election system should be blockchain based because I can check that my vote was counted and I can check that there's integrity in the election system as a whole, inclusive accountability all the way down. We are so far beyond interesting the state to have a monopoly over that because they have a disincentive to do that correctly. Identity, we own who we are. Google should not. Microsoft should not. A government should not. Just self-sovereign identity is a human right. It, we need to own that. Blockchains can guarantee that. And assets. We should be our own bank. We should own our own money. We do not need the state involved in the creation of assets, the regulation of assets, or uh, the storage of them um, and the management of them. We can, through a blockchain system, have a much more efficient bank. Well, once you have those three bedrocks done, you actually get easier uh, to manage the commons because you have much more nuanced conversations about the use of common property. Uh, and also you can have much more nuanced conversations about the state's monopoly on violence and warfare and law enforcement, these types of things. So I think actually blockchain makes states significantly better because it gets them out of the businesses that tend to create the biggest friction between us and the state. And, and that ought not to cause friction are enhanced and amplified because they have more legitimacy. And so people tend to participate more and ultimately you get smaller, much more agile governments uh, which, uh, for the most part, people are, are comfortable with and they're fairly happy with the governance and they're responsive to the will of people. Super. Uh, AI Love, do you want to ask your question? Yep. Uh, first and foremost, I just wanted to thank you for having me up here, Cheeky. 
it's an honor to be on stage with so many legends. I see the pioneers, Big Pay on stage with us, you know, and other people. Charles, of course, of course, Uncle Charlie. Um, I, I, uh, I heard you talk a lot about community efforts and uh, what does it look like when uh, community efforts are put up? Uh, what kind of endorsement, or what kind of connectivities are we having to be able to rely on each other or communicate between both parties? Because I just put on a spectacular event down in uh, Miami where I was dealing with a young gentleman by the name of Mikey Williams. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. Your, your nephews or nieces probably have. Uh, he just recently had a little issue where he was, you know, in a little legal trouble. And you know, he being a person that we are here in the city of Detroit, I come from a family. We run a nonprofit for 50 years. And, uh, you know, we work with kids in after-school programs. And so one of my initiative and my goals was to, you know, utilize the event to bring awareness, one, to the clinic, but also to what we do in blockchain technology. And I was able to do that successfully, you know, have a conversation about, you know, being in ownership of your brand and your identity in a new emerging uh, economy that's, that's pushing forward. However, you know, I did a little bit of outreach and it seemed like there was a high level of mockery when it came to my efforts and my attempts and what I was actually doing. And when we talk about uh, marketing and engagement, you know, there's different forms and everybody's going to pay a bill one way or another. Um, but when you have community members that are putting forth these sorts of initiatives, what, in which ways can we make this more impactful for, so that it's driving awareness to important factors like STEM education, like uh, bringing awareness to blockchain technology and what it's capable of doing inside of cities like Detroit. Uh, I just want to know, like, what are the what are the best means for community members such as myself, longstanding, been putting in the work in Cardano? How do I how do I really make the point or drive the point that hey, we're here to help, we have the access, and what kind of support should I be looking for from the Cardano ecosystem? I don't want my efforts to be misplaced, you know. Yeah, I I, I feel you. I understand exactly what you're talking about. So here's the thing, it, this is why institutions are so essential because what institutions do is they create a safe interface. Somebody who has a great idea to take, legitimize, and sculpt that idea into a way that then can be given democratic consent and funding. And so Intersect is an example of a community institution. And right now its focus is a lot on the product function of Cardano. But later on as it grows and it starts talking about the overall yearly budget of Cardano, and it talks a lot about uh, how to get certain things where they need to go, like the Cardano constitution process, the vision, but then ultimately new institutions need to form either sub-institutions under that or completely independent organizations that focus on other concerns. For example, marketing, education, adoption and growth, venture capital, these types of things. So uh, my recommendation is join, and there are already thousand plus people that have joined it, and there's starting to be committees that are forming about education and adoption and these things. Talk to like-minded individuals, and you do a little bit of lobbying within that. You build relationships there, and what ends up happening is then you start saying, hey, it's about time we start getting dedicated funding and dedicated uh, special uh, purpose vehicles to You there, Charles? That was me. I think he's uh, lost connection, I think. I'm looking for the yelling in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> Are you there, Charles? Well, anyway, Charles, I just wanted to say, we're gonna be doing the same thing in New York, so, you know, real world of Web3. It's never too late for IOG or anybody that's active. If you like what I got to say and what I'm doing, because I can't worry about what everybody else is doing. I can only focus on me. If you like what we got going on, if you like the efforts and attempts that we're doing to help bring awareness and education to the kids of Detroit, 
definitely tap in with me. You know, we can work together as a community. I don't like really being centered into, you know, things of politics to where it's got to be more voting, you know, then the backdoor conversations to be had. And I'm not really like that, Charlie, myself personally. Like, I'm an individual. I've got a good idea. It's an effort. It's an action. The people behind me, if you guys are big, you got your name, it's your blockchain. You know, that's what we're here for. You know, um, we're utilizing world mobile technology to also help decentralize the data infrastructure in that area. So, you know, I'm ready to get busy with anybody that's ready to get busy. But look, Charles, I know you're a busy man. Happy holidays. I hope y'all are enjoying. Thank you so much, Cheeky, yet again for letting me up. I'm going to step down. Thanks a lot. Uh, Charles, are you, you're on mute. I don't know if you're, you're connected again. Just embark. You with us again, Charles? I truly wish that Twitter would put more money into spaces. They're awesome, but uh, there's a lot of flaws with them. And unfortunately, uh, yeah. they just fail so often. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, it's okay. Uh, some work to, to do from Twitter's side, I guess. Uh, Big P, great to uh, have you on stage again. See, saw you in Dubai. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for hosting the space and thank you for taking the time, Charles. I really appreciate it. I got a really quick question. I was just curious about midnight. After Dubai, we were all really excited about it. And really, my main question is, you know, when can SPOs, you know, start helping run Midnight's network? Are we going to have a friends and family test net for midnight too? Yeah, that's the idea. So right now there's an alpha dev net and that'll become an, an open beta uh, probably in Q1 of next year. And then at some point there's an incentivized test net. And that's when you really start getting an SPO layer in addition to a DAP layer. And so it's uh, as opposed to the Cardano incentivized testnet, which was strictly for SPOs, it'll be both SPOs and um, DAP incentivization. So it's moving along. Um, about 1,200 people signed up for the alpha. About 800 uh, actually rolled in and uh, were onboarded appropriately. And, and now uh, we've, we're gathering an enormous amount of feedback. And the next phase is kind of get a bit more open. And right now the feedback is on DevX, the feedback is on uh, the actual compact programming language and the whole developed environment. Uh, but then there's obviously the next stage after that is the operational side of uh, running the network and running these things. And then it's kind of a two sides that has to run on both the Cardano net as well as the midnight test net. So we'll get there, uh, but you build it like an onion. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Iran's got a really good team uh, of people there. And what will likely happen is between Iran and Anthony Day and Maurizio, they'll, they'll come up with a rollout plan and let everybody know. And, you know, there'll be advance notice, you know, probably at least three or advance notice of, of when things are going to happen and how things are going to happen. And, you know, my, my big thing right now is we got to get SIP 1694 through because actually buried within that fork is Plutus V3, which includes BLS support. Uh, and that's a pivotal component for the partner chains bridging and to move value back and forth. That's just an example of just some of the things that are on the horizon. But um, then there's a lot of things that have to be done on the consensus protocol side. And then there's also a lot of discussions about exactly how to roll out Orkhorus Paris, which is another component that's required for the bridging between the partner chains and the side and the main chain and making sure there's decent finality time for uh, for asset movement. So uh, yeah, uh, you'll, you'll know a lot more in the first half of next year. And then the second half will likely actually start something. But you know, that's just a tentative deadline. We'll see where we fall. Development takes time. I've learned that myself, but you know, either way, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for keeping us updated as always, Charles. Hope you have a good rest yeah, of your of day. Yeah, of course. But by the way, it's been moving really fast. We we only had a two week delay in launching the DevNet for midnight. That's for input output. I mean, that's pretty fucking amazing. Normally, uh, those, those are a lot longer. So, uh, you know, it wouldn't be IO if we didn't make a deadline, but uh, we're, we're actually now in a much more tolerable window. 
Yeah, I noticed with Midnight, you know, you guys are actually focusing on, uh, you know, launching the DevNet first instead of launching kind of the, you know, the decentralized proof of stake mechanism. Is that really just, um, you know, from your experience in Cardano, did you feel that, you know, it's important to give developers the chance to kind of get in there and play around and have ideas, you know, before you actually launch the decentralization aspect of yeah, Midnight? Yeah, you have to understand that Cardano is selling something different than what Midnight was selling. So Cardano is selling this idea of a significantly better engine to create a proper layer one root of trust. That then can be used to initiate many services. Uh, and we accomplished that. I'd argue our Boris is probably the best consensus algorithm on market, and we're one of the most decentralized and reliable networks on market. So really, your first generation of tests is to show how to build that, bootstrap that. Midnight is a service chain. It's part of Cardano's service layer, and as a partner chain, its goal is to sell uh, to the entire blockchain ecosystem via hybrid apps uh, this concept of of privacy, uh, data confidentiality, you know, so you can add capabilities to your application for things like uh, regulated value transfer, or you know, maybe you want to uh, mine private data or these types of things. But it's not saying, hey, migrate your Ethereum application to Midnight. It's saying call Midnight as a service to augment your Ethereum application, your Cardano application. So it's pivotal you build a great development ecosystem. And it's pivotal that you build a good consumption model to show how to do that with applications. You're not really selling a consensus algorithm there. All you're looking for there is fast finality and predictable pricing and uh, a decent throughput. So that's a commoditized capability. And we get that with extensions of Ouroboros. So you don't really have to test that feature. You just have to verify that that feature hits certain SLAs and suitability guidelines. What you're really selling is the hybrid app model. So, you, so in this case, it's very prudent we get that right. We build a big developer ecosystem and we know how to use it with Cardano to Midnight and Midnight to Ethereum, because uh, that's what's going to drive a lot of traffic to that network and ultimately traffic to the stakeable operators uh, validating those transactions and making revenue transactions. Thanks. Thank you. Super. So I'm just conscious of time, Charles. Um, probably need to, to look to wrap it up. I think you said around 30. We caught up with Frederick uh, from uh, the Cardano Foundation yesterday. So if anybody wants to, you know, uh, give that a watch on on YouTube or stream it um, on uh, Spotify, um, there was some some great um, content there. Um, some some new updates from Frederick as well around the Cardano Foundation. It was a fantastic interview. I appreciate you spending the time with us today, Charles, and keeping everybody up to date with everything that's happening. Yeah, I could take about one or two more questions. Yeah, perfect. Um, JB, Nick, do you want to bring somebody up? So we've got Alex. Are you there, Alex? You're on mute. Uh, I'm there. Am I up? Yep. Can hear you. Yep. Oh, is is Carl still on? I'm still here. Charles, uh, uh, I'm thankful to talk to you. Uh, I have uh, a question about your exhibitions. Uh, I'm, I'm the guy that's been posting on Midnight asking about the partnership of the institution and corporations. And what I'm wondering is, is what are your expectations? Is IOHK doing the recruiting of these companies or are you expecting them to build independently? How can we set our expectations for larger corporations actually incorporating Midnight, say, you know, a medical insurance company for privatizing your data, but coming online 
how how do we contextualize this? Yeah, and so uh, this is one of the original sins of Cardano, one of the biggest complaints that we have with Cardano. When people look to Solana or Polygon, they say, oh, wow, they have these amazing ecosystem development groups that seem to be doing a great job driving adoption, getting developers to come in, and every week they announce some partnership somewhere. Well, initially, that was the mandate of Emergo. It never really materialized that way, and the right control, tru- control structures were not in place to enforce that mandate. So they just basically do whatever they want to do, the foundation. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not good. But if you're going to build an ESTEM, you need to do it in a way that people who are in charge of growth um, are not only incentivized, but also there's appropriate control structures and hold them accountable for that. So for Midnight as an ecosystem, part of the launch strategy is that's an ecosystem development group uh, that is much more representative of the needs of that ecosystem. And that group is then responsible for driving growth and adoption. Now in Cardano, we will fix this and we'll through Intersect through the budget process. So what's gonna happen as people join Intersect, whether you're an NFT project or you're a DAP or DeFi, everybody has a complaint and say, I'm getting screwed because X, Y, Z, or we need to make partnership A, B, C, et cetera, et cetera. So what's gonna happen is we're gonna collect all those complaints at Intersect as a community, and then we're gonna start pricing them and creating roadmaps and strategies, and then allocating money from the Cardano treasury to fund bespoke institutions specifically to do these types of things. For example, what if the goal is that Cardano always has representation at every major currency conference? Not IO creates a booth or the Cardano Foundation creates a booth, but uh, Cardano has a booth and it's, uh, it's funded by the blockchain itself, okay? Well, you could price that and you can actually have on behalf of Cardano an institution uh, basically staff that booth and make sure that there's trained people there to talk about it and onboard people. And uh, maybe that's something you think is important in the budget, okay? Uh, or let's say we want Cardano to have a Super Bowl commercial every year, and that's great for adoption. Well, should, I'm not advocating for that, but I'm just saying that's an example of a conversation. It's the same for partnerships. Maybe we want to make sure that uh, all the major crypto infrastructure is interoperable with Cardano. So we've done a pretty good job about getting 85%, but we're still missing some key players like Tether and Circle, for example. So you can allocate a budget assignment and uh, basically have an organization be accountable for that. With Midnight, we've learned a lot. And now that there's now Midnight, there's an opportunity to do an ecosystem development group very differently from how ecosystem development worked in uh, Cardano. And I think uh, that can then serve as a case study for how Cardano can build such a group, allocate treasury funding accordingly. So IO, as an engineering company, what we're going to do is certainly bring in partners to test capabilities. So I'm incredibly keen to explore mining medical data and incredibly keen to explore regulatory use cases, regulated assets like security tokens, these types of things. So you're damn right, I'm going to go find a lot of partners and have them go and try to give them some incentives to to build on the chain so that they they can basically test whether the product is working well or not. And I'm looking at this from a development lens. Does the product do what we claim it does? I'm not looking at this from ecosystem growth lens of how do we make this person a permanent partner of the ecosystem and build a billion dollar product on top of that ecosystem and, and bring a lot of transaction volume because we serve different roles. And I did the same thing with Card. brought a lot of people in to test and showcase capabilities of the platform. But I didn't sit down and say, God, how do I make sure that this person, this Dex or this person does a, you know, becomes a big successful business. Now, because there was such a lack of capital, I set up my own VC, the C fund, and used that to invest in some core dApps. And unfortunately, that was a mixed bag. Uh, people in the ecosystem didn't like working with the C fund or felt that the C fund was unfair in its negotiations. Other people felt that we were playing favorites. Like we invested, for example, in Sunday Swap, and it was just a big headache. They said, well, I'm in Swap, or why not this? It's like, okay. 
And that's the, that's a change when you are an engineering and science company, and then you cross that boundary into an ecosystem development company. By definition, you start picking some winners and losers just by who you pay attention to and who you don't pay attention to. And that's why I wanted to have those things separated in the beginning. And we only crossed that boundary when we were the only company that seemed to care or step up and actually want to provide uh, that support. Uh, and that was quite unfortunate. But I think we now have a solution through Intersect and through the Cardano Treasury to address that. And the ecosystem is stronger today because other factions stepped up and filled in where we couldn't. And that's the point of decentralization, that uh, people don't just hopelessly sit down and say, God, when is Charles going to save us? They figure out a way to actually save themselves and build their own things. And uh, just look at where we're at today in terms of TVL, chain volume, um, in terms of uh, assets being traded. Even meme coins on Cardano are are trading like a billion ADA. It's crazy. It's it's really remarkable to see completely organic and undirected and uh, and decentralized how this ecosystem is is grown. And we know that is decentralized because no VC loves us. You know the crypto media doesn't love us. Uh, Ryan leaves us off and Basari. You know even though by every metric you could look at ADEX on TVL, the price doubled. Our blocks are like eighty percent full. And he's, oh well, we just don't have any evidence that these guys are, are you know, growing. Meanwhile, he's tracking all of it on his own platform and he can see that we've been killing it this year as an ecosystem. So we've grown despite the fact that there's no central authority for these things. And there's a good case study to show how that's done well. So it's trying to create an agency that knows how to do all this stuff. What you need to do is create a, a series of institutions that see community efforts that are working well and then gives them an amplification as opposed to telling them what to do. Just is a halfway house solution. It's really bootstrapped a lot in our ecosystem, but it's not the end all be all. There's a lot of problems with it for an ecosystem growth potential, and we need to be cognizant and uh, you know aware of these things. So it's a complicated question. And uh, Midnight is an opportunity to do things a little differently. And Intersect is an opportunity for Cardano to do things a little differently. And um, I don't want to be critical of actors. It's just, you know, it's frustrating because we have so many amazing people and we've done so much amazing work as an ecosystem. And had we had pieces in place, I think we'd be much further along. It's also frustrating for me as a product developer because if you don't have good partners and good use cases, then it's hard to know what your backlog should look like. It's a hell of a lot easier to be a product manager in Ethereum because you just listen to all the complaints for the people building on Ethereum. And 95% of your job is trying to solve their problems in a coherent roadmap. When you don't have that same signal or feedback, you kind of have to be so smart in the future. And sometimes you get it right with Hydra, for example, and it's great. Sometimes you get it horrifically wrong with the Plutus application backend, for example. You know, and there's mixed bag in between, like DBSync, uh, where it's, it's not quite good, but it's not quite bad. Uh, Charles, thank you for taking my question. Thank you for making yourself available to the community. Uh, thank you for the insights on your thinking behind what's going on with Midnight and moving it forward. Uh, and I wish you a happy Merry Christmas. It's Bermuda. Hey, thanks for having me up, Charles. It's good to uh, connect with you again. Last time we were talking about you on uh, talking about lobsters in Bermuda and you having a dry year and a wet year when drinking. Um, for four years now, we went from a ghost chain to a lot of traffic over the years and been steady with our growth rates over the years. So for those who really aren't in the thick of understanding everything that's being built, some of the jargon on the roadmap and the strategies, I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but do you feel that the network congestion is an issue at all with the amount of development going on in the ecosystem? Or are all the necessary scalability solutions already in place for Cardano's growth? Thanks for your time. So I think 
Charles was disconnected again briefly there. I don't know if he's coming back on stage. Just inviting him up now. I'll repeat it if he uh, didn't hear me, it's all good. Okay. So, yeah, he's up. Hey, Charles, not sure if uh, you heard the question or not. You're on mute, Charles. Twitter really does need to sort this out, doesn't it? Yep. Okay, so this is the last one that I got to get going. But uh, real quickly, um, there, there, there's a two-way relationship here. One thing that really pisses me off more than anything else is when a DAP developer comes to me and they're told how to build a DAP and they just don't listen. And then they say, oh, the platform is bad and uh, doesn't meet our needs and we're just going to move on. Or they choose to do things in, a, in the least scalable way possible and then they complain when it's not working. So a great example would be Plutus V1 versus Plutus V2 or Aiken. If you use Aegis V2, on average, your transaction sizes will be one-tenth of what they are in Plutus V1. Also, the overall amount of transaction uh, volume that you need to have and how you build your applications is radically different. So if you're having scalability issues as a DAP or DAP user, the first question you want to ask is, this is a legacy application or have they upgraded to Plutus V2 and Aiken? And if they haven't upgraded to Plutus V2 and Aiken, then why in God's name should we go and double the block size to accommodate people that are using old technology? That's like saying I'm a bad software developer. So instead of trying to optimize my software, uh, I'm just going to force all my users to go buy the latest NVIDIA graphics card and the latest uh, state-of-the-art Intel processor so it'll run faster. You say, oh, okay, so you want your users to go buy a bunch of new hardware when the real problem is that you're using bad software. So that's one dimension of it is that they have to upgrade their dApps. And I understand it takes time and effort, and that's okay, and it's a growing and evolving ecosystem. But this is a shared common resource, and those 88 kilobytes are very precious. Now, uh, part of it is on the other side, the block size does need, as well as, well as mem units and other things, to get uh, larger. And then hypothetically, um, you need to get new technologies like Hydra needs to continue to evolve. Um, you need to get things like fee markets, so tiered pricing is another one of something that needs to come. And then ultimately, you need to change your consensus engine for high throughput on the one. And that's the point of input endorsers. But if you look at the roadmap for all of these different things, like the evolution of Mithril and Hydra, the evolution of tiered pricing, the evolution of input endorsers. These aren't hypothetical, we don't know how to do it, and we're just saying words. Guys, we're doing it at a level that no one in the industry is doing it at. We're writing academic peer-reviewed papers. There's dedicated engineering groups that have a proven track record of implementing these types of things, and there's a large community to test these types of things on. We can debate this can be done quickly or it's going to take some time, but it's not a debate that it's not going to be done. It's going to happen. And we have, as an ecosystem, two really significant 
competitive advantages over everybody else. Ouroboros was built from the ground up for layer one scaling. We know how to do it. We have a direction to do it. It is not a nice to have or something you bolt on and you don't have to spend 80% of your block size and consensus overhead like certain other uh, ecosystems that shall remain nameless. Okay, this is something that we understood as an ecosystem before Cardano even launched. Ouroboros was built for this direction. The second thing is extended UTXO. This accounting system was built to reconcile off-chain activities, proofs, and other things, and move from a transaction per second to a transaction per transaction model. So when you look at where the world is going, a world of state channels, a world of roll-ups, a world of settlement of proofs with these computation outsourced somewhere else, that world is intimately compatible with an extended UTXO model. It is not compatible with an accounts model, which is why it's so hard to do it on Ethereum. It's so hard to do it on other ecosystems that embrace that. So we future-proofed ourselves with our engine and our accounting model. So we have a built-in advantage over everybody. Now, that doesn't recuse us from fast execution. And we got to speed some things up here and there, and it takes time to do it. And it doesn't recuse us when we occasionally make architectural mistakes that slow us down. But remember, we're still number one for GitHub commits. Cardano's been rewritten multiple times, and it survived seven years of engineering effort. And it's been operational uh, the day it launched to today with no disruptions, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The other thing is we're operating on constant load, like greater than 50% block saturation with no gradation of the chain. So, yeah, he's up. Hey, Charles, I'm not sure if uh, you heard the question or not. You're on mute, Charles. Twitter really does need to sort this out, doesn't it? Yep. Okay, so this last one, and then I got to get going. But uh, real quickly, um, there, there, there's a two-way relationship here. One thing that really pisses me off more than anything else is when a DAP developer comes to me, and they're told how to build a DAP, and they just don't listen. And then they say, oh, the platform is bad, and uh, doesn't meet our needs, and we're just going to move on. Or they choose to do things in, a, in the least scalable way possible, and then they complain when it's not working. So a great example would be Plutus V1 versus Plutus V2 or Aiken. If you use Aegis V2, on average, your transaction sizes will be one-tenth of what they are in Plutus V1. Also, the overall amount of transaction uh, volume that you need to have and how you build your applications is radically different. So if you're having scalability issues as a DAP or DAP user, the first question you want to ask is, is this is a legacy application or have they upgraded to Plutus V2 and Aiken? And if they haven't upgraded to Plutus V2 and Aiken, then why in God's name should we go and double the block size to accommodate people that are using old technology? That's like saying, I'm a bad software developer, so instead of trying to optimize my software, 
uh, I'm just going to force all my users to go buy the latest NVIDIA graphics card and the latest uh, state-of-the-art Intel processor so it'll run faster. You say, oh, okay, so you want your users to go buy a bunch of new hardware when the real problem is that you're using bad software. So that's one dimension of it is that they have to upgrade their dApps. And I understand it takes time and effort, and that's okay, and it's a growing and evolving ecosystem. But this is a shared common resource, and those 88 kilobytes are very precious. Now, uh, part of it is on the other side, the block size does need, as well as, well as mem units and other things, to get uh, larger. And then hypothetically, um, you need to get new technologies like Hydra needs to continue to evolve. Um, you need to get things like fee markets, so tiered pricing is another of something that needs to come. And then ultimately, you need to change your consensus engine for high throughput on the one. And that's the point of input endorsers. But if you look at the roadmap for all of these different things, like the evolution of Mithril and Hydra, the evolution of tiered pricing, the evolution of input endorsers, these aren't hypothetical, we don't know how to do it, and we're just saying words. Guys, we're doing it at a level that no one in the industry is doing it at. We're writing academic, peer-reviewed papers. There's dedicated engineering groups that have a proven track record of implementing these types of things. And there's a large community to test these types of things on. We can debate that this can be done quickly or it's going to take some time, but it's not a debate that it's not going to be done. It's going to happen. And we have, as an ecosystem, two really significant competitive advantages over everybody else. Ouroboros was built from the ground up for layer one scaling. We know how to do it. We have a direction to do it. It is not a nice to have or something you bolt on and you don't have to spend 80% of your block size and consensus overhead like certain other uh, ecosystems that shall remain nameless. Okay, this is something that we understood as an ecosystem before Cardano even launched or Boris was built for this direction. The second thing is extended UTXO. This accounting system was built to reconcile off-chain activities, proofs and other things and move from a transaction per second to a transaction per transaction model. So when you look at where the world is going, a world of state channels, a world of roll-ups, a world of settlement of proofs with the computation outsourced somewhere else, that world is intimately compatible with an extended UTXL model. It is not compatible with an accounts model, which is why it's so hard to do it on Ethereum. It's so hard to do it on other ecosystems that embrace that. So we future-proofed ourselves with our engine and our accounting model. So we have a built-in advantage over everybody. Now, that doesn't recuse us from fast execution, and we've got to speed some things up here and there, and it takes time to do it. And it doesn't recuse us when we occasionally make architectural mistakes that slow us down. But remember, we're still number one for GitHub commits. Cardano's been rewritten multiple times, and it survived seven years of engineering effort, and it's been operational uh, the day it launched to today with no disruptions, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The other thing is we're operating on constant load, like greater than 50% block saturation with no gradation of the chain. Ordinarily, when you redline an engine, it blows up. But Cardano can run at 90%, fully saturated blocks, and the system doesn't blow up. It just runs. It slows down your user performance, and it requires some UX changes on the DAP side to accommodate that. But it's not like the system just stops working. It, it actually has the ability to operate at full load redlined, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of time, if we wanted to, you see? So it's it's an all-hand solution. You have to upgrade your dApps and be smarter about how to use them. We have to continue the pace of progress with Hydra. Uh, we have to, uh, to get input endorsers eventually in. And yes, parameters have to be updated and changed. And uh, we have to get larger block sizes. And we have to update, modernize network stacks so they can tolerate having 100 kilobyte, 150 kilobyte blocks. Uh, and we also have to change the way that uh, batching computing is done inside the system so we utilize uh, mem units more efficiently. 
But all of these things are known. And there's great people across the ecosystem that have very strong opinions on the best way of accommodating these types of things. And they will get, and they're not going to get done five years from now. They're getting done next year and year after. And then it's just a distant memory. But guys, remember when we launched Plus V1 in September of 2021 as an ecosystem and Sunday Swap came out, some people had to wait two days for Swap. Is anybody doing that right now? It's seconds to minutes. And they're complaining about seconds to minutes. It's not hours and days for swaps. So that's already showing orders of magnitude improvement in our ecosystem. You also take a look at the diversity, if you go to extendedutxo.org, of transactions in each block. It's not one thing. You see stablecoin stuff and NFTs and DEXs and Oracle transactions in addition to everyday ADA moving about. And that, that's a vibrant network, all things considered. Nine million assets, I think, have been issued. You got hundred and 20 plus projects that have launched over a thousand plus that are under development. And that's where we're at today with no VC love as an ecosystem preciously using an 88 kilobyte block every less than 20 seconds. That's pretty remarkable. If you think about that growth pattern from having no smart contracts in September of 2021 to where we're at today and how we're already entering the third iteration of Plutus and we're seeing to integrate some of these second order concerns like rollups and data availability considerations and getting Mithril into the ledger and uh, following Hydra as it evolves and gets uh, all the capabilities it needs to be effective middleware in people's applications and design patterns are flying. It's also important to understand that not only did we launch with a new programming language, we also launched with a new accounting model. Very few Ethereum smart contract developers understood how to do UTXO. And we not only did that, we had, they had to learn how to do Haskell and extended UTXO. And despite that, people were able to start building applications and there's a learning curve. And, we got through that uh, learning curve. So I did a 52 minute video on scalability. I'd recommend you watch it. It's a whiteboard video. It kind of talks through these things in great detail, but overall I'm very pleased with the approach. We need to speed a few things up as an ecosystem. It's been really hard to do all the governance stuff at the same time, but we're almost through MVG and Intersect uh, taking it over, I think is gonna make it a much diverse uh, product backlog that really represents uh, urgent needs. And also uh, by getting fixed cost contracts with different providers, it's allowed different development teams to specialize and really dig their into it. Like for example, UTXO being handled by Welltide. Uh, the implementation or Boris Genesis is being handled by Tweeg. A lot of the zero knowledge stuff being handled by a military contractor called Galois. And they're one of the best in the world to do crypto engineering. So that's not input output doing that work. It's actually these guys doing that work and they're on fixed cost contracts with well understandables and penalties if they don't deliver. That's a very different engineering reality uh, than it was just two or three years ago. So that's a huge step forward. And we can double down as an ecosystem on that, really accelerate that. Hydra is our most successful open source project in the ecosystem. There's more than 40 companies that are regularly participating and talking, competing clients are already under construction. I'd love to find ways to accelerate the output of that project because I think it's going to be a huge win in scalability. Didn't go anywhere. If you go to Twitter, there's people, oh, well, Hydra didn't do this. It's like, well, it's an open source project. It's growing. Well, but it didn't solve all my problems today. That's failure. You guys are all liars. It's like, come on. Twitter's not reality. You got to look at the chain metrics. You got to look at the TVL growth. You got to look at the dev, the dev experience. You got to look at the rate of progress. You got to look at how quickly things are shipping versus when we say they're going to ship versus when they actually ship. That's real life. By every metric, uh, things are significantly better today, December of 2023, than they were September of 2021. Okay, and so we are really moving in the right direction. And I think 2024 is going to be our best year in terms of growth. Um, and it's going to be our best year in terms of capabilities. And I think we'll solve almost all of our scalability concerns in 2025 and 2026. 
and will be the market leader. The other thing is think about the, 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 the parallelization of effort. The partner chains framework means that by probably 2025, 2026, we could be an ecosystem of more than 50 to 100 blockchains running in parallel and working with each other, as opposed to just one. Parachains, I think, has 193 parachains on Polkadot. And we're using uh, part of that technology as a base. So we know it can operate at that level. Okay. So imagine that you could have thousands of dApps, 50 plus blockchains operating simultaneously, hybrid dApp models where they all call each other. And you're selling those services, not just to Cardano and its dApp ecosystem, but to Ethereum and all the other smart contract developers and their ecosystem. Those transactions come home and millions of, uh, of uh, cross-chain communication calls and uh, transaction fees that flow through. And with Babel fees and DEXs, uh, you'll have hundreds of foreign assets on Cardano, all trading into ADA, ultimately powering that system. That's a remarkable ecosystem. And we're barreling down 100 miles an hour towards that end with hundreds of engineers working towards that goal and products working towards that goal. So it's extraordinary to me when people say, oh, it's a ghost chain and we're not making progress. We are not only making progress, you know, we're making more progress than I'd say any other ecosystem. And by the way, the technology helps us. Extended UTXO helps us. Ouroboros helps in that direction. Plutus helps us in that direction. It was built custom purpose for this reality. Meanwhile, the competitors, their, their technology gets in the way and they're always, God, how do we redesign and go to Ethereum 2 and Ethereum 3? And, oh, I guess we got to add staking in like the right way because uh, maybe they're needed. Go, go figure. And, oh, I guess locking your funds isn't the best idea. Oh, the account model. Oh, God, how do we add UTXO into that so that we can get this stuff? Meanwhile, we already have it all there. It's been figured out. It's, you know, and so I get a little uh, prickly about this stuff at times because it, it's not like we're just making it up as we go along. We wrote all this shit down in 194 research papers and we told the entire world year after year after year, this is the way to do it if this is what you want. And then for some reason they ignored us and now they're rediscovering all of it. And then you got to love the crypto media. They're like, oh, I guess Vitalik just invented it. We're like, maybe he read one of our papers and three years later commented on it. God, we're working this forward. As an industry, we really are the academic leader and in many respects are the engineering leader of the industry. You know, we're just trying to get where to go and some things slow us down, unfortunately. But I think 2024, we've resolved a lot of the things that have historically slowed down the ecosystem and we're unlocking the potential of millions of people. Anyway, I do have to go. Thank you guys so much. This was so much fun. No, I appreciate that, Charles. Uh, are you got any plans to visit the UK anytime soon before you go? Or have we uh, lost you? I think we've lost Charles again. <laughs> Might be a, a no to the UK visit. Maybe. Um, awesome. I appreciate you spending the time with us, Charles. If you're still here and you can hear this, um, really appreciate everybody joining us to, today as well. Uh, don't forget to give us a follow if you want to keep up to date with everything Cardano and uh, check out the interview that we did with Frederick yesterday. That is on the YouTube channel. Go check it out. I appreciate every one of you. Have a fantastic Christmas and New Year and uh, make sure that you spend that time with the family. Take care, everyone. Take care, guys.